Hello, and welcome to the LB School Podcast. I'm Christy Michelle, the School and Library Manager here at LBYR, and today I have the pleasure of speaking to J.C. Geiger, also known as Jeff, author of the forthcoming The Great Big One. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for taking the time to, to talk with me. Your debut young adult novel, Wild Man, was published in 2017 and was named a Bank Street Best Children's Book of the Year. Could you tell me a little bit about Wild Man? Absolutely. <laughs> Wild Man came about in kind of a, a crazy way. I was actually on the way home from a writing conference, and it was one of many that I was going to, and I was pitching different books, mostly fantasy books, and they were the pitches were failing spectacularly with agents all over the country. <laughs> and my car broke down. I was driving a 93 Buick. My car broke down in the middle of nowhere and I got stranded at this motel and it was a Sunday. And so there was no one who could fix my car. And at this point I'd been writing for over 10 years and trying to get a book published. And I had this total crisis moment. Like I, this was not my high school idea of what a professional writer was going to look like because <laughs> I was in my thirties at this point, And I was like, what am I doing with my life? What, what you know, do I still want to write even though it's likely I'm never going to publish a book. And so in that motel, I just thought, I thought about this Hemingway quote that is write one true sentence. And I decided I wanted to just write the most real book that I could write and stop thinking about publishing at all. Because for me, at that point, it felt like it would never happen. So I thought, what's more real than writing about an identity crisis catalyzed by a 93 Buick breaking down at a motel in the middle of nowhere? So that's what I wrote. And that became Wild Man. And for me... It's a book that's essentially about kind of that reckoning of identity. I mean, it happened to me when I was in my 30s, but I found that I was dealing with a lot of issues I had been wrestling with since I was a teenager and, you know, insecurities I had and doubts I had and battles I was fighting within myself. And it felt like that was kind of the essential struggle of young adulthood was fighting those battles of risk versus safety, heart versus versus cash, you know, however you want to frame it. And so I wrote a book, I thought it was completely unpublishable because it was not the kind of book people were telling me to write. And I actually, a friend had to convince me to submit it once it was time, once it was finished. Uh, and for me, it's just, it's, it's still a very personal book and it's been amazing to, to have it out there in the world. I still kind of can't believe that it ever it ever got published, but it's been amazing to kind of hear how it's connected with other people wrestling with what's next in their lives. So that makes me wonder, you said you'd been writing for 10 years already. Was writing always something you wanted to do? Did you always envision yourself as a writer? Have you always been a writer? Oh my gosh, yes. I've always, I, I mean, probably since third grade, I remember I wrote this story. I grew up in a small town in Illinois. And so I wrote stories about what I knew, like my life in this small town. And 
I wrote a story about kind of walking around in this muddy kind of underdevelopment area near my house it was just like stripped out foundations and just muck and probably sewage and who knows what else and I wrote this short story just about being there and I called it swamp walk and I was in I was in third grade and and my teacher it was maybe the first time she kind of called me to the front of the class for uh, a good reason she asked me if I would read it to the class and I was really blown away that I could write something that seemed good enough to share with other people and that other people liked it. It made them laugh. It made them kind of talk to me afterward. I felt like I knew them better and, and they knew me better. And from that point, I think I always had storytelling in me, but that was a moment for me where I was like, this is, I want to keep doing this. I, and I love the process. And when I would get an assignment to write, you know, a one page story, I would write like a 10 page story or 15 page story, which went over better than when I would just run my mouth in class. So I found that by writing things down, instead of just talking, I had a better response. So that was a, a good way for me to go. It also makes me want to ask you two other questions. The first is when you were talking about kind of, I guess, finding your voice as a writer when you were first writing Wild Man. How did you land on writing YA? So why do you write YA? And also, I'm super interested in if you like had any fan mail or any readers who reached out to you to tell you how Wild Man has like affected their lives or how much they enjoyed reading it. Great questions. The first question, I think there's there's two main reasons. One of them is you know, I wrote so many different, in so many different ways. Like I wrote poetry, I wrote plays, I, I wrote, tried to write screenplays for a while. Uh, I wrote adult kind of literary style fiction. And I would go to these different associated conferences or writing groups or critique groups. And I went to SCBWI in Western Washington had this conference. And I remember editor Jordan Brown saying, you know, the best YA book for me has a real story, a gripping story, but also is doing some wondrous things with language, with kind of that literary sensibility. And that really struck a chord in me because I always found when I was writing commercial fiction, it felt, you know, maybe not on the on the plot point superhighway quite enough. And when I was writing literary fiction, I would almost whatever you want to call literary fiction, I was writing things that felt too genre for the people in my critique group or that I was working with. So it felt like a real sweet spot. But also, the people at SCBWI were the most fun people. Like, people were fun. We stayed up late. We had a great time. We talked by this campfire. And the the world of YA writers just felt really nurturing and middle grade writers and illustrators as well. And really fun and really like, we're all in this together. Didn't feel as kind of competitive and snarky. And I just loved the people. So that made me lean into it. And then I also just kind of still feel at least in part, like a teenager. <laughs> like I love hanging out with teenagers. I do the summer camp every year. And I just feel like there's something quintessential in almost all teenagers, which is this kind of challenging the world around them, uh, finding humor in things, 
this this artistic kind of art this artistry just bursting through teenagers in music and in writing and in performance and just in the way that they think about the world that I just love. It's easy for me to love teenagers and it's not for everybody. I mean, for me in a kindergarten classroom, I have real challenges, (laughs) but around high schoolers and middle schoolers, I just, I feel like I just fall into step with that phase of life. And then in terms of letters, I got the best message from somebody that I think I've ever gotten just two weeks ago. And like you said, Wild Man came out a few years ago. And it was someone who they said they'd read this book three times and it compelled them to take a trip that they never thought they would take. And then it also made them think about where they were in their life and not just in what they wanted to do for a career, but also their own sexuality was that was something that they were wrestling with. What's really interesting about that is Wildman doesn't, the protagonist is not wrestling with a lot of the same issues that this, this writer was wrestling with. And it really blew me away that when you write something true, it can resonate with someone on a level that it's true for them. And to hear somebody who was having such a transformative experience guided by this book that was outside of my personal experience in writing it, it felt like it was tethered by the truth and the vulnerability that was present in that bridge between between author and reader. And it was it was, it was amazing to read. I mean, I, I told him, I said, if, if, I, if I only got this letter, if someone had given me this letter when I was 15 and said if you keep writing someday, someone will send you this letter. I would have kept writing. Oh, I love that. That seems like such a great experience for you to have had as, as an author. I feel like a lot of authors feel like when they're writing, it's a very solitary experience. And then publishing, actually publishing your book is like an experience all of its own. And so when they actually get to hear back from the people who this is all for the readers, it's just, it's just really great. Yeah, it's amazing. I want to share one more because it really touched me as well, is that I try not to give too many physical descriptors to my protagonists. And that's a choice. People can go either way. But I had someone do, do some art for me. And he wrote me a few notes and said that I really resonated with this. I'm also a trumpet player like Lance and Wildman. And when he sent me the fan art for what Lance looked like. He was Asian in the fan art and looked similar to the fan who submitted this letter. And I was so blown away. I was like, oh my God, the fact that someone can see themselves in this character was like the highest compliment anyone could pay me, um, uh, you know, as a writer. And I, uh, and I, I have that, you know, hanging in my office because I love it so much. What were the seminal books of your teenagehood, the books you thought you discovered and were made especially for you, the ones that have stayed with you as an adult and have shaped you as a writer? Also, what are you reading now that you're excited about? So my earliest memory of loving a book is I had just gotten a haircut, like a buzz cut, and I was sitting on the couch in you know my little little house that that I grew up in. And I was running my hand through my hair, reading James and the giant peach. Oh my gosh. That's (laughs) one of my favorite books. Oh, it's so good. 
And I had this kind of like peach fuzzy haircut. And I was reading James and the Giant Peach. It was my first rule doll book that I'd ever read. And it's just this crazy tactile. Like I can smell the sofa. I can feel like the stickiness of the air and this like shorn hair. And just was so enthralled by this book. It was like the first book that I just sat and read cover to cover and then started it over once once I'd finished it. So that wasn't, I mean, obviously not a YA book, but it's it stuck with me. And then, of course, I read everything that Dahl wrote and was just after every every book I could get my hands on by him. And then I, the other book I fell in love with in, in middle school was Sideways Stories from Wayside School by Lewis Sacker, which I loved for their weirdness and their just craziness. And also, that's what I loved about Dahl, too. I'm like, these are weird books. Like, I felt like I had weird thoughts. I was kind of a weird kid. And I was like, these authors are writing such bizarre, crazy stories. Like, in Sideways Stories from Wayside School, like, there's the one story about all the rats that stack themselves up and hide themselves in a trench coat and come to the (laughs) classroom. And I was like, how is this published? And then I was like, it's published. I can write weird stuff. It's so great. Um, and then in high school, I, I loved Christopher Pike. I loved Stephen King and Ray Bradbury. Like I liked kind of dark, weird, creepy stuff. But I think you know the two books that most really struck a chord with me were The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Loved that book by Stephen Chopsky. Was just that was a book where I felt like it spoke directly to me and kind of what I was going through. Yeah, I don't think I read it quite in high school. It's after high school, but it really blew me away. And then another book that's not a young adult book, but was The Professor's House by Willa Cather, which is a, I know is a strange choice. It's not, I don't think, on many YA reading lists, but to me it kind of dealt with, yeah, all these essential questions about who you are and who you want to be when you look back on your life. And it made me want to really go out and see the world and, and adventure and, and not be hemmed in by the expectations that, that come with growing up anywhere. And right now, I'm reading a few different things right now. I, I am into The Ways of White People by Langston Hughes, which I can't believe I've never read. It's blowing me away, uh, particularly the quality. The quality of the writing is amazing. I just finished a book called Dreamland about the opioid epidemic in America, which which is also fascinating, just kind of about the way that that epidemic took hold with all these interspersed, all these personal stories. And I also try to always have poetry nearby. So I'm reading some Elamar Wilson right now, John Ingman, who I love, kind of a, he's a relatively unknown poet from, from the Twin Cities area and uh, Billy Collins, Carolyn Kaiser. So kind of a whole mix of stuff right now. This next question is actually a question I love asking authors because one, I'm a marketer and I like having really great comps and I like knowing what comps authors have for their books. Two, I, I'm i kind of a visual thinker. So I like knowing what a book will look like, both facing out like in a bookstore, but also like with the spine out next to other books. So if you could place the great big one on a shelf alongside three other books, what would those books be and why? You know, f- for me, 
I I read YA, but I read a lot of other books as well. And I feel like when I'm when I'm writing, I'm drawing from kind of different inspirational wells across the entire landscape of everything I've read, everything I've experienced. And so like this particular book, the wells I'm drawing from are not necessarily from the books that are on sh- like a bookstore shelf right now, but more like maybe the shelves of a reader who's got books from, you know, 50 years ago up until now. So in terms of like what this book evokes in me and where I'd love to see it, this is aspirational too. Like I'd love to see this book next to a tree of night by Truman Capote, uh, there's an awesome book, Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe yes. Called by Henry oh Bergy, right? So good! I um, love that book. That was one of my favorites from last year. It's so good. Um, and it's so about music and how music can really, I mean, it can stir you into, like, where you're feeling like you have a relationship with these artists who maybe you've never met. And probably you've never met, but you can become, they can become such figures in your life that, that they're like your roommates. They're like the people that live in your head. And then, you know, another book, The October Country by Ray Bradbury, uh, and just a lot of the stuff Ray Bradbury writes has this interesting place where nostalgia meets the creepy and the strange. In terms of where I'd place it, it comes out of so many different parts of me i think in terms of authors that, that that kind of evoke the same similar feelings like i really love mt anderson's writing i think if someone had me next to mt anderson on a shelf i'd be super excited <laughs> because i think he's really good at what he does but yeah that's like the best that's the best answer i can give it's it's a tough one for me if i think of if i think of more when we're done i'll i'll uh, i i can throw them out no, that's a great answer. And also, I really like that description you use. And I feel like it's a perfect description for the great big one. Nostalgia meeting the strange. Like, I was trying <laughs> to find the words to to describe the atmosphere in the great big one. And I couldn't. And that's why I have a question in here about it. And that right there is a perfect way of, of describing it. Yeah, because I think, right, this is something fascinating about becoming an adolescent and questioning the world you're in, is that we all have this looking glass moment where we pass through this childhood period where we accept everything as the rule and everything is kind of natural, and we start to see the things in our own lives as unnatural or as strange or as not of us. And I think that moment of, of separation from what is this quaint childhood and what is who we are to become, there's a dissonance in that when things that maybe seemed kind or conventional become kind of sinister or creepy. And Ray Bradbury does that overtly in his writing about Greentown, Illinois, where you know the carnival that should be a beautiful thing becomes this really sinister, awful, fantastical machination. But I think that other writers do this as well, where, yeah, you're through the looking glass of childhood, and there's this moment where you're caught in this kind of creepy dissonance of what you accepted as beautiful and true, and what you are learning is um, kind of the future of your identity. So 
you spoke a little bit earlier about your journey in writing Wild Man. So it's four years later? Yeah, that's Five right. years later? Four or five years later? It's a few years later now. And the great big one is coming out into the world. So could you tell me, did you have a different experience writing the great big one from writing Wild Man? I'd say it was, it was quite different in that I think Wild Man just kind of like burst from my chest as this expression of truth. It's like when I finally had the courage to write what I felt like my truest story was, that was how wild man came about. And I feel like the great big one was more like seeing, it was kind of like chasing, kind of like chasing a song. It was kind of like chasing a light that I could see. I could see this, this truth. I could see that there was something really powerful in some of these images and some of these scenes that came to me. And while I was pursuing the writing of this book, so much was happening in the world over the last four years. It's been eventful. And I did a lot of growing in the last four years as, as a person, as a writer, uh, as a citizen. And I think that this book was more of a process of me kind of chasing truth through a complicated landscape of national identity, racial identity, of, uh, of, of you know, the way I, I was dealing with kind of the different realities in this country. And this was even before the pandemic came along. So I think that while Wild Man was more dealing with things that had kind of built up inside me from my past, the great big one was more about grappling with how do we continue to seek truth and and light um, when we are in such a tumultuous place as as a, as a country as a society and as a human being the title of your book is the great big one but when i look up that phrase on google one of the first things that comes up is an article from the new yorker and in that article they say that the great big one is the next full margin rupture of the Cascadia subduction zone. What does that mean? Do you know what that means? And what is the great big one? Okay, I'm so glad you asked because, see, you're in, I'm guessing you're in New York. Yes. But essentially, right, on the West Coast, we know to various levels that a tremendously devastating earthquake and tsunami are just geological seconds away from happening. And it is written in the records of the tectonic plates and the geography and even the oral histories of tribes who lived uh, on the West Coast. And it, it's known that there will be a massive event that could be anything from wholesale destruction of the coast all the way, I mean, for miles uh, west of the Cascade Range in, in Oregon, uh, or it could be more minor and just decimate the towns on the coast. But the question is, in geologic terms, it's, it's seconds, but in human terms, it could be one or two or three generations before it happens. So... Most of the research in that in that great New Yorker piece is based on Oregon State University information. And we, when you live out here, it's just this accepted reality that this is going to happen. But we don't know when. 
so what do you do? And and for me, it's it's kind of remarkable that particularly in the small communities in the Oregon coast where I've spent a good amount of time, everyone there with property along the ocean or restaurants or these boardwalks, you know, they all know this thing is coming. There are signs all over the place, like physical signs. There are drills, tsunami drills, sometimes once a week, other times once a month. And it's just in your face. If you live out there, and I think it's an accepted reality, but in accepting that reality, I just became so fascinated by what does it do to your psychology constantly being aware that the place where you live could be destroyed any minute. And I mean, if you drive into town on the Oregon coast, I wish you could I wish you could experience this, but when you when you drive to the coast for the first time, you start seeing these tsunami evacuation signs and the arrows are pointing the opposite direction that you're driving. So you're kind of like, Hmm, what am I going into? And then you get to the coast and there are these amazing signs on all the the beaches that show you all the ways the ocean can kill you. I mean, these are amazing signs, like little, danger, yellow diamonds with pictures of stick figures dying in all these gruesome ways, like beware unstable cliffs, beware rolling logs, beware sneaker waves, beware, I mean, all of these things, all of these ways to die. And it made me think about how does that acute fear of something specific mesh with the more generalized fear that we all have with our own with our own mortality and having this pandemic has made that even more poignant as to how we, we wrestle with the fear that we have in our life and, and what we choose to do because of it or in spite of it. Just hearing you describe the signs, like the physical ways that people have incorporated this knowledge into their lives and how they like build their communities. It sounds like a post apocalyptic landscape but like pre-apocalypse, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it it, it it can feel that way. I mean, the siren was really the first thing that really grabbed my attention. I was doing like a presentation on the South Coast, and I heard this super loud air raid style siren that sounded like it was from what I'd heard in like World War II. And it turns out it was. It's the siren that is actually used in the the book. It's this thing called the Thunderbolt Siren. And while I was completely rattled by this, the people in the room in the presentation, they were just kind of quiet the way that you are when a train passes if you live in a neighborhood with a train. You, You don't really think about it. But your body has to pay attention to it to some extent. Like, it's an embodied thing. I mean, this is a loud enough siren that it can shake the windows. And this is something that the people in this town, they deal with, whether it's once a week or once a month. And it made me think, whether you consciously say this scares you, at what point have you, and to what depth have you internalized this, this grappling with your own eventual mortality? And as a teenager... You'd have to ask yourself, like, why did my parents pick this of all places to live? 
because you know every small town a kid grows up in you wonder about your parents like why did you pick this place to settle but this place you know with all the signs and the tsunami warnings you have to kind of wonder at some point like why why here mom and dad what you just said what you just mentioned about embodiment and just being used to an environment to being used to the things in an environment immediately made me think about Charity, who moved to Clade City, and Griff and Leo and Thomas, who have lived their entire lives in Clade City, and just the differences in how they respond to what it's like living in everything that Clade City is. But talking more about Clade City, how did it come to you? Not just the city itself, but the doomed atmosphere that permeates it, the fatalism that so many of its residents have. And what was it like creating that world that's not so very different from our current pandemic-stricken times? I think having spent a lot of time on the coast and also having grown up in a small town, there there's a moment at which in, in getting distance from those places, you start to see how an environment really shapes people, whether they want it to or not. How, you know, being social creatures and being human beings, we are going to adapt in some way to our environments. And there's beautiful ways to adapt, and there's also real, really hard ways to adapt. The image that comes to mind for me is these these trees that there's a German word for them, krummels, which are the trees that you see kind of clinging to a rocky cliff over the beating waves of the ocean, usually some kind of evergreen, some kind of twisted pine tree that has the needles that look like someone's hair has been blown straight back. And I remember looking at these trees and thinking, these trees are so beautiful and they look like they look like they've had a really hard life because they're they're clinging at the edge of this really windswept kind of almost brutal kind of environment and i think spending time in in just various various places i've i've thought about what do those forces of wind and those forces of of, of envir- just environmental realities. Like, how does that shape the way people see the world and about the way they interact with one another? And I think people can respond to adversity by really coming together and by knitting together and being a strong kind of positive force. And I've seen that, certainly seen that in small towns and in coastal communities. But I've also seen ways that environmental adversity can create fear and kind of nurture fear and we've certainly seen that with the with the pandemic when when people are increasingly isolated when they are increasingly worried increasingly afraid it becomes kind of a shaping force in your mental landscape and in your life so for me i kind of thought about the ways that that these environments can work on the human psyche and work on our uh, the ways that we connect with one another. With the pandemic happening, again, I started the book before the pandemic happened, but it kind of 
reinforced some of those feelings about what what isolation and what adversity can can do. I'll preface this next question by saying that Clade City and just the whole world of the preppers was so foreign to me. And I, it, it goes back to when you asked me if I'm in New York, but it was just so foreign to me. And I was so just fascinated by the psyche of the preppers and how they went about everything. And I was just like, these people are like aliens to me. But of course they're not. They're just, you know, normal people not living in New York. Um, I'm really glad, like, how, yeah, I'm fascinated by, I know this is a preface, but, like, I love hearing that because it's it's interesting to hear from, you know, from your perspective being in New York, like, how this all must have seemed. Like, I, I could have, I could only imagine. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really strange. And, I, like, in the first few pages of the book, I was like, is this something he completely came up with on his own? Like, is this all from his imagination? Um, but then as I read more, I was like, this is probably stuff that people do in real life. I just have absolutely no idea of it because I live in my like little like square apartment in New York and I haven't left it for a year. So. <laughs> we're all, we're all suffering from a little of that. Like I, I mean, I feel like I would love to be in New York right now. So <laughs> it's like, man. So could you tell me a little bit about the research you did for the book, especially in terms of all the knowledge that Griff and Thomas have as preppers? Definitely. You know, as I was saying, I kind of got exposed to the towns on the South Coast. I was, I was working on the South Coast of Oregon with a lot of different organizations. And actually, one of the organizations was a radio station. And I learned that a big part of what they wanted to do with their radio station was be a disaster preparedness kind of hub. And it was just when I started to kind of learn about the, the impending earthquake, but also how the fear of that earthquake kind of galvanized part of the population to think about the other disasters and the other things that could possibly happen and how that kind of knit communities together that were interested in preparing for the disaster. The reality is when people hear prepper, if they know what prepper is, you know, disaster preparedness, a person involved in disaster preparedness, they tend to get these images of, you know, super militant, kind of extreme, doomsday prepper, ready for the zombie apocalypse types of people. And not to say there aren't those extremists within the prepper world, but I got a lot of what I know from just being at meetings, you know, uh, prepper meetings that they have, open public meetings, uh, education kind of seminars people would give on best practices for disaster preparation, you know, g getting your ham ra radio ready and having, you know, X amount of, of water and supplies, having a, a bug out bag, which is the thing you're supposed to have by your door, you know, to grab at any minute when something goes wrong. And like any society, you've got people kind of, and I'd say the prepper is kind of like a subculture group. You've got people at all ends. And so I learned a lot from just listening to people talk and from being in the communities where prepping is kind of a more active thing. You might, in New York or in Chicago, you might ask somebody, well, what's a prepper? And if they've never seen 
you know, doomsday prepper or something. I mean, a lot of people don't know what a prepper is, which blew me away actually coming from, from Oregon and being out of the coast. Cause I'm like, everybody knows what a prepper is. Right. And, and then people told me, no, no, they don't. People don't know what that is. You have to explain it. Uh, so that was a lot of it. Uh, I read a lot of journals. I read a lot, I watched a lot of uh, videos, a lot of, um, kind of first person accounts of, of disasters people had been through and kind of how they lived their lives differently afterward. One of the most fascinating things I got to do was I got tipped off on this radio expert. There's so much about radio in the great big one. And this guy lived in this little house in Nebraska in a, in a rural community. And he had radio antenna snaking all up this house and had even built himself like this little crow's nest type area at the top of his house to get the best radio signals. And I got to meet with this guy for a few hours and drink coffee and talk about radio and how far it can travel. And, and then I, and you know, and that's when I learned that when the sun goes down, the ionosphere changes and AM radio waves can actually freely travel all over the world and I mean, the, th- the thought of that blew my mind. And then I got to leave his house in Nebraska and drive through Nebraska at night, listening as the sun went down to the kind of deterioration of signal clarity as all these noises just came rushing in with the sunset. And it was, it was mind blowing. It just, well, you just said mind blowing, but this is something else that blows my mind about the book. Just this idea, I guess it's not an idea because there are real preppers. Um, I'm one of the people who, before I read this book, if you asked me about a prepper, I would have been like, do you mean pepper? Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Um, But it blows my mind that there are people who prepare for like just regular citizens, not like people in the government, but people who prepare for physical and natural disasters when like, just being alive disasters happen all the time that don't have to do with nature just like living your life disasters will happen you know what's really interesting is when i went to a prepper meeting a few weeks ago i was asking some questions about the earthquake and how prepared people felt for that and a few of the guys who'd been in the group longer they laughed and they said we're not worried about natural disaster i'm like wait wait this giant devastating tsunami whatever they're like no i mean that's they they said that's practice that's a trial run for the real disaster and i said well what's the real disaster and said the collapse of society that's the real disaster so it was really interesting to have this kind of impending threat of this earthquake that's scientifically proven to happen and it will happen at some point but even within the prepper culture, people saying, well, that, yeah, that'll happen, but we, we got that. That's not going to be a big deal for us. What we're worried about is what happens when the entire government collapses and society goes crazy. That's kind of, I think, the end game for a lot of preparedness is when people are turning against each other and what one person called the interruption of services, which is when you turn the tap, no water comes out, you flick the lights and there's no electricity. There's no currency, there's no anything, and then what do you do? I think that's what I've learned has been, is, is the focus of many people who are, are into that kind of preparedness. 
One thing that really struck me about the novel is the strength of Griff's voice. And actually, after hearing you speak about, you know, how much you love poetry and how you used to, to write literary fiction, like I can see, I can see it there. The novel's written in third person, but it's with the rhythm of Griff's thoughts and emotions. We as readers get up real close to his subjectivity, his desires, his worries and anxieties, his feelings of being trapped in this small town. How did you navigate that? I think for me, I need to have a really close passenger seat to my protagonist because in order to want to stay with them the whole book, I feel like I really have to know them well. And I, I do that really by listening to the character's thoughts. And I tend to kind of overwrite, I, I mean, I don't know if it's overwriting, but it's, it's, it's a lot of kind of deep immersive as if I'm journaling from, from a character and their point of view. I mean, it starts with me because I did grow up in a small town with my own desires and worries and anxieties about being trapped there. So that that's a good starting point for Griff and I to kind of to kind of bond. But I think for me, a book really takes hold when I can feel enough distance between who I am and who the character is, and we start to diverge and and think about things differently. And for me, it's so much about trying to put myself where Griff lives and what does he wake up and see in his room every morning? What does he hear? What does he feel like when he walks down the street? How does he feel in the hallways of his school? Which is distinct from my experience. So I think for me, when a character's thoughts start to feel like poetry because I feel like poetry is the closest writing gets to dreams. And I, my goal as a writer is to be in the mind of a character like a dream and be able to kind of be in the wash of their thoughts and emotions in real time as much as I can. And because of that, I tend to initially write books that are almost twice as long as they could ever possibly be or should be. I mean, I think the first full draft of this book was almost 200,000 words because so much of it was just surfing the ebb and flow of Griff's thoughts and emotions and his mind. And then in that finding the thread of truth, you know, cutting out what's me, cutting out my own expectations and beliefs, and really just trying to be riding along in the head of a character. And I think that goes with all the characters to, to some extent. You know, it was quite a journey with, with charity and, and definitely with, with help from other readers whose experiences were closer. I had a number of people who were black women, one who had grown up in a small town helped me with that. And I, I knew that, that I was getting closer when charity started to tell me I wouldn't say that. And I started to approach writing charity and other characters too with a certain with with respect and also with a certain amount of caution about make sure you're drawing the line between what you want and what your character wants you can't make them do things for the for your convenience you've got to let them be who they are so i'm a little sister 
you may have heard my sister like doing stuff in the background in this podcast, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're wondering what all those weird noises are, it's my sister who is also working from home. So I'm a little sister, though I'm not a twin. So Gris' relationship with Leo seemed so familiar to me. My sister and I are super close. We live together. But Gris' feelings of being overshadowed or even stifled rang very true to me. Are you a little brother? And how were you able to bring to life the tension between Griff and Leo, as well as the love between them? Well, I come from a family of, we have, I have three siblings. Uh, I'm actually the oldest, but I feel really close to my siblings. And I also feel like something that was very alive and I think that's very alive with many people as they're growing up are those feelings of being overshadowed or stifled. And, you know, without giving too much away the book, I feel like what's interesting about those feelings, whether they're with peers or with siblings, is they're often reciprocated in a way that may not be clear to us at the time. I remember thinking a friend of mine, I actually called, I called him perfect Matt. <laughs> That's what I called him when I was like in eighth grade or freshman year. I'd come home and say, ah, oh, it's got perfect Matt. He's so good at sports. He always gets good grades. Like he's just good at everything. Like I got, I, and I liked him. I didn't dislike him. Um, but I just thought, I, and he's kind and he's above these, you know, stupid feelings that I have of inadequacy and, and I remember connecting with him at a reunion, you know, 10 years later. And I told him this story and he laughed and he said, and he said, you know, it's so funny because I always thought about you in theater and in writing and how you just seemed to be fearless in the things that you did. And I thought, man, you were fooled, Matt. You were totally <laughs> fooled. I was not, I was not brave. <laughs> I was not, not worried about things. And, um, I think that's kind of an amazing, that was an amazing moment for me. And I think it just shows how universal the human experience is, where we're just, even with people we love, with our siblings, with our parents, how we might have these feelings of envy or inferiority or of whatever it is. And just, I think none of us really escape those feelings. And part of life is trying to navigate them and in a way that allows for that love to shine through. Because I think the ability to be honest with one another about those feelings can kind of allow the way for love to come through, but it makes, it's only possible with vulnerability. And in this, in, in this story, I kind of really wanted to explore how that vulnerability can kind of close off when people are feeling competitive and when they're very close in age or if they want the same things or if they're growing up. So they were hard scenes to write, actually, uh, because they were just painful for me. Because I think it's, it feels like something I, I think we've all experienced is closing off from somebody that we could be really close to, but feelings of jealousy or of, of being stifled or overshadowed kind of get in the way of that closeness. So music is a big part of the great big one. What does music mean to you? What do you think music does for Griff and Charity and Thomas in the novel? And 
do you think if they didn't have music, they'd have found something else to hold them together, something else to believe in? I heard a friend once say that if a YA book can do in 300 pages what a great punk rock song can do in three minutes, then you've absolutely won as an author. And I think there's a lot of truth to that in terms of the emotional impact that music can have on everybody. But particularly, I feel in the the teenage years, music can become, and for me was, and to some extent still is, kind of an essential core piece of of who I am and just how I move through the world and think about the world and maintain an emotional connection with the world around me. And I think music is unique to a certain extent. I, you know, I went to this exhibit at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a few years ago about festivals and kind of festival culture. And I've spent some time going to a few festivals. I'm not, not extensively, but, but enough to see how songs and how the, the power of an artist to bring thousands and thousands of people together singing and swaying and speaking the same thing. Uh, you know, music functions the same way in worship, you know, in churches, the power of, of, of song, everyone raising their voices together, singing together. I think it, it has this power to connect us to ourselves, to our own bodies, through the sounds that we're making and the ways that we're moving. And then through that embodied feeling, able to connect to other human beings in a way that is so human and so natural. And I think if you've ever been to a concert and sung along, or you've ever been in, in, in church and sung along, I think people have felt that to some extent. But also, like, it's revolutionary power. I mean, this whole, I this whole thing I read about the the singing revolution, which was like the restoration of independence to the Baltic states, like in Estonia, and how this revolution came about because the people of Estonia all sang the same song together, like thousands and thousands and thousands of voices raised up against their oppressors. And how it was this nonviolent revolution that was conducted through the power of song. So I think with Griff and Charity and Leo and everybody else, that idea that you could feel so alive about the same music, I mean, that's how friendships for me really came together in high school. It was like, who likes the same music as me? I don't care what else you do. If you play sports or don't, if you do theater or don't, if you look like me or you don't, what music are you into? And and that made us just brothers and sisters. We'd jump in the van together and drive off to the show. And I think that there's this ache as well, especially now during the pandemic, there's this ache for who is like me? Who, who feels this piece of art or this piece of music the way that I feel it? And the ability to be in a room and share your voice with other people who love something as much as you love it is a magical experience. And I think it's one that is, that is incredibly innate for us as humans. And I don't know that anything does it as well as music. I think dance, dance can do it, but usually dance goes along with music. Uh, 
so yeah, I think it's I think I think it's better than writing at doing that. I, I wanted to be I wanted to be a rock star, but that didn't work out. So I'm a writer instead. But I think like music just because ha- music just has this amazing power to so quickly bring people together, and, and you can fall in love with a song. And I think the way you can fall in love with a song, you can fall in love with someone who loves the same song as you. What are three songs you think would make it onto the soundtrack of the hypothetical film version of The Great Big One? This is such a great question. And it's the question I ask myself before I really get into writing the book is what goes on the playlist? Uh, I think, so two easy ones are Franz Liszt and ACDC both have to be on the soundtrack for sure. (laughs) So they don't usually share space on the same album, but they have to for the great big ones. So probably La Campanella or Hungarian Rhapsody 2 by Franz Liszt. There's no avoiding Thunderstruck by ACDC. It's expensive, people negotiating film rights, but I just think it has to be there. Um, other, you know, and, and aside from there, I feel like uh, there's like a, the canvas in my mind of this uh, book has been painted with groups of musicians almost more than specific songs. So I would say the band Blind Pilot, if they were to write or score the soundtrack, uh, they actually have one of the epigraphs in the book. They are a band that is based in Astoria, Oregon. So it's a coastal Oregon band. It's amazing. Uh, the way that they kind of paint pictures with their music really influenced this book. And there's a band called The Collection, which I actually write about. It's actually in the book. It's a band from North Carolina uh, that originally started out as this huge band, like, I don't know, 20, 25 people. It, it sprang from like actually a church, as far as I know it, uh, a church group, like a youth group that just basically anyone who wanted to be in the band could be in the band. Um, and now they've, they've winnowed it down. I think there's six or seven members now, but they play amazing music that has this almost orchestral feel to it. And uh, they like Blind Pilot, I feel like could just, you know, any number of their songs would, would fit, would fit really well in this book, maybe a little Stravinsky, not too much. Uh, and then, and then I have to say this too. One of my beta readers for this book, she's uh, 17 or 18. She made me a mix, which was the sweetest thing ever uh, after she read the book. And there's this song called heart, like an orange by the fruit bats, which just when it starts off, it just sounds so much like something that, Griff and Charity and Thomas and Leo would listen to and identify with. So, so that might be, that might be on there too. Can I throw in one more? Oh yeah, of course. I think Wayfaring Stranger by Rianne Giddens would also have to be on there because it's so amazing. Um, and it, it's the song that uh, Charity sings at the bar. Uh, and I love that song too. What do you hope young readers take away from reading The Great Big One? There is this poem that I really love called Three Songs at the End of Summer by Jane Kenyon. And the poem goes through a lot of really amazing visceral emotions and images. And it ends with these two lines that have stuck with me. And the lines are, 
I stood at the side of the road. It was the only life I had. And given with the rest of the poem, these lines kind of reflect the way that you only, growing up, you have the life that you're essentially given. You, you have the environment you've been raised in. You have the resources that you were raised with. You have the identity that has been shaped to a large extent by your environment and things you have very little control over. And I think what I would love readers to take from this book is kind of that idea, especially younger, but at any age, that there are people out there who are like you and can see you for who you are and who will love the same music and and kind of fall in love with it the same way. I think it can feel daunting, especially now. I mean, during the pandemic when we've all had to be so much more isolated, but I think a lot of people, especially as you're younger and you can't really get away, it's easy to lose hope that maybe there's no one who's strange like you or who sees the world the way you do. And I think this whole idea of the beacon and the lighthouse and the perseverance required to kind of chase that thing that really makes your heart sing is is key to this. And to some extent, I think it's probably why I will write all the books that I write. I think that that lesson might not be, I don't know if it's even a lesson. I, I think that that belief may be kind of tamped down in other books more than this one, but I think it's absolutely essential to have hope that there is something better out there and to get to it, you might just have to keep going. I think that's a great way to wrap up this podcast and such great words for, for people to keep with them coming into the great big one. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for asking these questions. It's been really fun to, to have a conversation about the great big one. Listeners. Thank you for tuning in. The great big one hits shelves on July 13th. So make sure to pick up a copy. You can find Jeff at jcgeiger.com and on YouTube at The Underclassman. And you can always find us on Twitter at, at LBSchool. Until next time.